Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Agogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Agogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Triple R. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. You are listening to 3 R. I'm Dr. Shane. We've got an hour of science for you. In the studio with me is Dr. Lauren. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? I'm good, and it's good to uh, it's good to be back on air with you. It's been a whole month. I know. It has been a whole month. Yeah. It flies, though. It's it flies. almost the end it of flies. the year. It's very yeah. depressing. Speaking of thoughts, so long, uh, Lyndon, we just saw each other last week. I know. I've just been hanging out in the office all, all week. You slept, you slept here I for slept seven here. days and yeah, yeah. hope for the best. <laughs> hanging out for right now. Yeah. And Liv's back doing our Twitter feed. She's had a few weeks off uh, doing stuff, but uh, glad to have her back. So if you're not following us on Twitter, folks, you should, because Liv will tweet out lots of interesting things from our guests as we go through the show. We're going to start off with some news. Uh, we have three guests today coming up after the break, but we'll do our news first. And uh, Lauren, we'll start with you. Well, I got very attracted by a story this week which talked about why humans are like salamanders and zebrafish, which obviously you know, makes me go, why, why? This is a very cool story from Duke Health. Um, it was published in the Journal Science Advances looking at cartilage repair in humans mm. and why it is that when you injure your hip, it often takes a really long time to recover, but if you hurt your ankle it can actually recover a lot quicker. And I think a lot of people will have, you know, know of people that have had that happen. And so this study was really interesting. It was looking at why it is that the cartilage in your ankle and your more external joints actually recovers and repairs quicker than the more central cartilage, so in your hips, for example. And what they did is they looked at the age of the proteins within the cartilage, particularly collagen, um, in the different parts of the body using these special internal molecular clocks, which basically look at how often the amino acids within those proteins uh, translate and, and change into different amino acids. And so what they find, if it's a new tissue, new cartilage, they've had few of these conversions between the amino acids because it's obviously a new tissue, whereas older proteins and older cartilage have had many of these conversions. And you can pick that up using mass spectrometry. Um, spectrometry. And so uh, the reason it's really interesting is because it's obviously showing that uh, the, the, co- the correlation between the age of the cartilage and the location in the body also correlates with limb repair. And the reason that the researchers are then linking this to the salamander is obviously because salamanders are able to restore their limbs so if they lose a leg they can actually regrow them and so they're saying that this could be a very interesting potential treatment so you might be able to actually use the knowledge about how the the proteins change in the cartilage and potentially develop some medications which could help with things like arthritis for example yeah because it's interesting we we very commonly replace hips Mm. uh, i suppose because you get to that point where they're not repairing at all Mm. or or the long-term damage is such that you can't you can't catch up exactly Whereas, you don't hear a lot about ankles no that's replaced, it that's it well it was interesting when i started to read the article that's the first thing that came to mind i'm like yeah you don't hear of ankle mm. replacements that often people often do have surgery but it's it seems to be repairing a little easier yeah, yeah. um so that the, the basis behind all of this so these amino acid conversions within the cartilage are controlled by micro rna and so the, the scientists are basically saying that they're, they're noticing that the microRNAs are more active in animals that can regenerate their limbs. And so they're thinking that perhaps if we can 
try and harness that and, and come right. up with treatments for microRNA, maybe we can help people that have things like hip replacements to recover better. Yep. So where did the zebrafish come in then? They're not regrowing any legs anytime soon. So they, I believe they can um, repair their, I might be wrong, and I'm sure there's a million zebrafish researchers listening, but I believe that they can repair their fins more oh. effectively. Um, but I may be wrong on that. But um, I think that they sort of fall into, the, the, there's um, a few other things. Uh, so lizards as well, obviously, have this ability to, to regenerate limbs and cartilage. And so the microRNA in their process is sort of similar to what they're now noticing in humans. Very cool. Very cool. Dr. Linden, cows? Oh, cows. <laughs> My goodness, Dr. Mm. Shane. I came across a story this week that I just I had to send it to you both because I thought this, this is what science is for. This is a story about how to make cows a bit less attractive to flies so flies actually i started off thinking this was a funny story but there's actually a very important economic uh, reason why this is such a study there are millions and millions of dollars that are spent and that are lost every year in the dairy industry in the beef industry because of biting flies all Mm. around the world that affect cows and a study published in plos one this week from a team of researchers from japan have found that one way to stop flies biting cows is to paint them like zebras see that just sounds outrageous <laughs> oh my goodness i love it like wh- where would they have come up with the idea oh, i love that i but love could it you imagine though like like to us you look at a zebra and it's a bit you know the contrast is pretty heavy but to a fly's eye mm. that would seriously mess with them well this is why is this, yeah sorry did i jump ahead no no that's, that's <laughs> exactly right. so I, originally you have to step back a little bit and think okay why you, you paint a cow like a zebra all right are you saying that zebras are black and white to protect themselves from flies? And actually, there is some research to suggest that, yes, because flies aren't really very good at seeing different stripes. Mm. Follow an effect from that. If you're going hiking and you don't want to be bitten by a marsh fly, wear stripes, apparently. Mm. Yeah. yeah. And you won't get shot by a US senator either because they'll be able to see you. <laughs> well, they might think you're a zebra. <laughs> oh, big game. Big game, yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, so flies just look for big dark shapes. And so when there are stripes, black and white stripes, uh, the flies get a little bit confused. So these researchers, they only looked at, they only used six cows, six black uh, Japanese cows, and they painted uh, two of them black and white. They painted one of them just black with black stripes to see if the odour of the paint had something to do with it. And mm. they just left two, fly, two cows on their own. And they kind of... They rotated it around. They did it. Six cows doesn't sound like a lot, but they did work through this quite method, like quite methodologically. It was very, very meticulous. And they studied how many flies bit all of these cows. And they mm. studied the reactions of the cows as well. Did they swat their tails? Did they shake their muscles? Did they flip their ears to try to protect themselves from the flies? And they found out that the black and white painted cows, significantly lower number of flies that bit them and significantly fewer behaviours to try to get rid of these flies wow. I love it so my question now straight away I'm starting to think you probably are too because you're you're an optometrist yeah. in the past yeah. you know what I'm talking about but <laughs> how many stripes what's yeah. the minimum number of stripes okay. required right. mm-hmm. so let me talk you through that the stripes <laughs> need to be the stripes in this study were hand painted it took oh, about nice. five minutes yep. to do each cow and the cow <laughs> <laughs> I tell you it was a very reproducible I, I, study I can imagine this cow like saying hey, hang on what's going on here yeah. <laughs> and, walking off <laughs> yeah, no no yeah. they were tired they were okay. tied to different yeah. posts okay. um, and and the stripes are about five centimetres in width. Mm-hmm. Okay. This is sort of the, mm-hmm. this is 
This is the size that they have decided. So. That is definitely one of the first thoughts that goes through my mind because one of the ways that you can actually measure someone's vision is with what's called grating acuity. So you can mm. actually look at how thick white and black bars are and you know when you get very, very narrow bars, if they can still see it, then their vision is better. So it's almost like you're doing an eye test on the flies at the same time. I love yeah, it. Yeah, that's true. You actually change it yeah. and see which okay. ones they can see. So, okay. folks, when Dr. Linden emailed me about this story during the week, my immediate response, which of course was very serious, was that they should paint them like unicorns because <laughs> flies being smarter than humans would know that they weren't real and they would leave them alone. Is that. No? I don't know. I don't know about that. I mean, <laughs> it, flies would see a big blob and think, oh, there's a pointy horn. I don't care about that. I care about I'll land it. on that. I'll land on that. I'll get some of that sweet rainbow blood and maybe it'll help me live forever. I don't know. It would make it's, the paddocks look amazing, though. Imagine that. Yeah. Just all these unicorn colors. I love yeah. it. Don't you love it, though, when they bring physical sciences in to solve biological problems? I love that. Yeah, it's yep, really definitely. interesting. And I, I mean, that. they did check to make sure that it wasn't the odor of the paint. And they did, yeah. in the discussion, they thought this is a good uh, option, alternative to using pesticides yeah. or different mm. things like that. Mm. But of course, you have to think about how long it's going to take. You have to think about the paint that rubs off over a few days. So do you make use longer paint? Is that better or worse for the cow? Yeah. You know, mm. there are a lot of things to consider, but... I'm just really happy to know that this sort of science exists. I think it's great. I mean, for me, my curiosity is around what's going through the cow's mind. (laughs) Look, I was okay with your milk and me, but this is just getting freaky. (laughs) What the hell's going on? Black and white and not my colour. I'm more of a, you know, bright yellow sort of person. Well, I wonder how it works with um, cows that are more, you know, patchwork, you know, like they've got various colours to them already. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's part of the evolution to help flies because spots also work apparently to to, um, detract flies and maybe we're in the middle of a cow evolution where they're trying cow, to get yeah. spottier to yep. protect themselves. And we're just jumping the gun. Maybe. Yeah, sounds <laughs> great. Now, uh, I wanted to mention, um, no, I know Dr. Linden will help me with this, uh, a couple of our Einstein Go-Go host members this year have been cleaning up in terms of awards for their excellence in the research. One of them is uh, in the room with us right now, isn't Dr. Linden? Uh, Lauren Ayton uh, has won one of the Tall Poppy Awards this year. But not only that, uh, she is the Victorian Tall Poppy of the... Of the year, right? Yay! Yes. Thank you. Yeah. Congratulations. Now, what, what do you? I I got one of these like uh, I'm going to say decades ago because it was more than <laughs> one decade. And back in those days, back in my days, um, we went out and we toured at schools. As a result, is that still part of the program? That the outreach is still. Part? Indeed, it is. So it's basically the idea is about um, helping scientists to outreach. So through this program, we're going to get involved with some science programs at different schools and really try and, you know, I guess spread our love of of science, which is something I really love talking about, as you probably realise. But no, it's it's such an honour. And um, I was saying to Lyndon before, it was a huge shock because um, all of the nominees and the other tall poppies are brilliant science communicators Mm. and researchers. So I was very, very honoured. Not as good as you, though. (laughs) What does it mean? What does it look like for you, Dr. Lone, going Mm. out to schools and talking about your research? You know, for me, if I go to a school, I can talk about clouds and I can do sorts of things. But are you you getting kids to do eye tests in class and those kinds of things? One of my favourite tricks is talking about uh, sort of visual tricks and, um, you know, optical illusions and explaining why optical illusions work. So that's always Mm. something I think that engages kids quite a lot. So um, I'm sure you've probably all heard of the trick of trying to find your blind spot. So if you, you know, close one eye, then you can sort of move your thumb around till you can't see it anymore and, yeah. and those sort of tricks yeah real great radio stuff yeah totally oh yeah my research translates so well on the radio. <laughs> fantastic yeah. well congratulations dr lauren it 
it's a it's a big thing. And my advice to you, uh, having done this once before myself, is find these schools that have the least funding, that are in the most challenging suburbs, and go out and give them what most universities don't normally do, which is a bit of time. Definitely. Um, because we tend not to care about some of those schools. And I had a great time going out to some of the less privileged schools and, and interacting with kids who never got to see anyone from universities because no one really cared. Yeah. So... Um, yeah, have fun. Well do, well do, thank you. And we should also mention our other colleague, uh, Laura McKay, who is um, a researcher at the Doherty Institute, who this week you may have seen won the 2019 Frank Fenner Prize for Life Scientist of the Year. It's one of the PM's awards. Um, so there was a big uh, gala up in Canberra, which, Lyndon, you went to. Yes, I yeah. was lucky enough to go as my role of one of the Science Technology Australia's superstars of STEM. Mm. They invited all 60 uh, women who were part yep. of this superstars program up to to watch these incredible uh, prize winners be awarded. And I had no idea. I saw Laura when yeah, I got there yeah. and I thought, what are you doing here, <laughs> Associate <laughs> Professor McKay? And then yep. I saw her on the stage it was it was great it was a really really incredible night to be surrounded by so many wonderful scientists and so many female winners as well yeah mm. yeah so no fabulous and i think um we all agree laura is one of the superstars of science in this country and i'm going to call it early and say one day this woman will probably win a nobel or something similar because her mm-hmm. research is exceptional and if you read anything about t-cells and immunology and cancer cancer therapies, you'll find her name all over at the moment because she's doing some great work. So she's in China no right now. No so she's not, she's not listening, but uh, she's in China, um, you know, talking about her stuff. So, but we'll have her back in a, in a couple of weeks. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. Uh, welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Einstein and Go-Go on 3RRR. In the studio with us now is Richard Fuller. He is the man in control of Pure Earth. From uh, He's over from New York at the moment. It's a not-for-profit. Richard, welcome to the studio. Thanks. Great to be here. Now, you're only here for a few days. Yes. Uh, to collect an award, I understand. Tell us a bit about that. Yeah, the Advance Award. It's uh, Australian government recognising people who are doing good work overseas. Hmm. Australians doing good work. It's, it's really nice. Yeah. Um, and in terms of your work, you've been working on issues of pollution for a long, long time. How did you get involved in that initially? You know, about um, 20 years ago, uh, having travelled a lot overseas, especially as an undergraduate and early, you know, my early career, it was obvious that there was a lot of problems in low and middle income countries with pollution. Mm-hmm. And there weren't many people dealing with it. I couldn't find people dealing with it like they were dealing with biodiversity or with climate or with water. So I thought this is something that needs to be addressed. And that's what kind of kicked it off. Okay. And in terms of pollution, what what do you mean there? I guess it's a, it's a huge, long piece, piece of string here, but uh, there, yeah, are, there are no all way. sorts of issues of pollution. Are there some specifically that you're, you're sort of looking into? Yeah, we have a very tight focus on pollution and health. Mm-hmm. Our concern is anything that's put out into the environment by human activity that's causing mortality or morbidity. Okay. So for us, it's not about whether it's harming the ecosystem. It's about children, especially. Okay. Can you give us some examples of, of, of what some of those, some of the, say, top five would be? So the largest toxins out there that we, we promote first is uh, the particulates, air particulates, PM25, mm-hmm. PM10, and ozone. Amongst that group, they're responsible for uh, right now around five and a half million premature deaths a year. 
Um, to put that in perspective, uh, malaria kills around 600,000 yeah. deaths a year, HIV around a million deaths or so on. Um, next on the list, uh, there's still quite a lot of infectious disease. We put that into a broad category, uh, about a million deaths a year from infectious disease. But the third one is curious, lead. Dear mm. old lead, we thought mm. we'd gotten rid of it and gasoline. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's now uh, still responsible for around a million two deaths a year, and probably many more than that. And what's the source at this point? I mean, you said the petrol's been cleaned up, so... Yeah, countries have gotten rid of it. There's only... I think North Korea still has lead in gasoline, but it's now from batteries. So lead consumption has only increased even since it was phased out of gasoline. Uh, 85% of lead is consumed in car batteries. Those big, heavy things in every car, every motorcycle, even every electric vehicle has one. Even these lovely, you know, new Teslas, they have to have one of these in case the lithium batteries die. This is a backup for it all. Mm. So that's 85% of lead use. And the problem in low and middle income countries is that they're not recycled properly. Here they're recycled well, but overseas um, they're recycled in backyards and there's a lot of leakage. And we find tens of thousands of these little backyard operations and around it, two, three, four, five thousand kids who have right. very, very high levels of lead. Wow, yeah. So this is a huge life cycle then, Richard. You know, people think of pollution, sometimes they think of rubbish. That's obviously not the focus of pure right. earth. If you're thinking about addressing this particular problem or particulates in, in the air, where does pure earth come in at addressing that? Right at the start in terms of development and policy or through to improving the techniques that are used in these background recycling plants? All right, so... so y- the issue in all of this is to deal with prevention and um, that has to be first on the table it has to be developed uh, the processes need to be developed country by country by country with the right sort of regulatory structures and the right sort of enforcement processes in play Um, when they're working and effective and the very dirty recyclers are halted or moved into industrial estates where they're not going to poison kids then the next phase of going in and cleaning all that mess that's left behind needs to follow as well. So that process is one that we're now beginning to undertake in four specific pilot countries, India, Bangladesh, Colombia, Indonesia, um, and we'll continue to move that forward uh, over the next 10 years or so. So my question really tied into that. So yeah. um, I've actually been living in upstate New York and I have a young child and he was getting lead tested regularly because of the fact that there used to be lead paint right. in the area and they were saying it was still in the soil. So how long does that persist? So if you have pollution in your soil, yeah. um, you know, how long does it take till that goes away or do we have to actively clean it up to improve that? Well, it's elemental. So you can't, it doesn't naturally degrade. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's the thing that all radioactive materials end up as. As lead. As lead, mm-hmm. right. So it doesn't go away. But w- if you have low concentrations in soil, just through natural weathering, it will slowly, slowly move through the soil. And you do over a long period of time see it reduced. But it's tens of years. It's many decades until you see levels reduced. So around uh, houses that have been remediated for toxic lead or, or the rest of it, you'll often find under the eaves in the gardens, mm. quite high levels of lead that needs to be dealt with. Mm. It's not expensive to deal with it, by the way. It's pretty easy to, f- to fix. Mm. And what's the effect on the body of, of lead contamination? Uh, so um, at low levels, and the measure is micrograms per deciliter in blood, uh, between zero and five 
micrograms per deciliter. In children, you lose about five IQ points. Oh, okay. And you're more likely to be engaged in violent crime when you turn into a teenager or a young adult. 30% more likely to be involved in violent crime. And guess what? All of the countries that have really high uh, blood lead levels, they're all really violent. They're all just filled with a whole bunch of violent uh, activities. Mm. Uh, in addition, between f if you get to 5 and 10, you lose another three IQ points. Above 10, you start to see uh, all sorts of other chronic issues related to kidney disease. And at those levels as well, there's a cardiovascular risk that hasn't really been adequately defined. But in the US, the most recent paper shows that the cardiovascular risk from the low levels of lead that are in the US, similar to that they are here, is the same as the, as the cardiovascular risk from smoking. Wow. So these are just things that people haven't really incorporated into public health appropriately yet. But even these very low levels that we have, occasionally two or three, you know, which would be a worry for a kid to be tested at two or three, but it's not really terrible. Mm. By the way, the average in Egypt is 14, in Bangladesh is 12, in India it's nine, and so on. Mm. Much, much, much worse conditions overseas. Mm. So this is obviously a fairly terrifying problem. Surely the, the governments of the countries that you're working with are fully on board and supporting you with these programs? They, they are, and what a big lift it is for them to undertake and begin all this process and how early in that stage they are. So there's a long, long, long way to go. There's no resources available for them typically in these sort of things. The monies that we bring are often the only monies they have in their own budgets. The processes of bringing in that senior executive, the PM, the president, on down and through, that often isn't, hasn't happened yet, hasn't become a big congressional process. It's just a long, slow process to, to go with all these things. So, so, Richard, I think everyone in this room, with the exception of Liv, I suspect, would have grown up um, with lead petrol and so forth. And uh, I, I can guess a level of contamination that is higher than would have been acceptable. Uh, have, you know, are all our IQs a bit lower than they should be as a result? Yes. Is there an entire... Just shocking. Shocking. Yeah, you all, um, you all would have been smarter. I mean, look, all, my kids are smarter than I am. I mean, do you... Yeah, yeah, all, yeah, yeah right? my kids are smarter. Yeah, yeah. Kids are smarter. There, there yeah. is good science that shows that since the 70s, the overall IQ in the West has increased by four or five points. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. It's not the, the correlation, causation, all that sort of yeah, stuff yeah. is very dicky, but it's, it's, it's there. It's interesting. And in terms of other pollution areas, I mean, what, uh, beyond, beyond lead, is, what's, what's the other sort of big one that you're going after at the moment? Because we're, we're pretty good at polluting the place, aren't we? Unfortunately, yes. Yeah. And there's a whole set of new pollutants. We don't really understand how their health implications are going to turn out, things like the PFASs and those mm. sort of things. In terms of the ones we know are, are worrisome and have substantial uh, public health numbers, where Dally's you know, disability adjusted life years where they're measured and pretty and pretty problematic. Mercury is a big one, and that's a global pollutant. It because it's uh, vaporizes easily. Um, it's a liquid and a gas. You know, at room temperature, mm. so it becomes very motile. So it moves easily into the food chain, and obviously it ends up in fish and the rest. So mercury hexavalent chromium is a okay. serious worry in a lot of low and middle income countries, mostly because of the tanning process. When you're tanning leather, um, the cheapest, nastiest way to do it is using hex. Now, hex is the stuff that was in the Aaron Brockovich movie. Right. Yep. Okay. Yep. So it's a pretty nasty uh, toxicant. Um, obviously, air pollution, you know, is, is, uh, 
is an issue everywhere. And that's, that's the thing that's so closely aligned to climate because mm. it's coming from the same source. It's coming from fossil fuel combustion. So PM25. So these are the kind of the main things that worry us. Yeah. I, I suppose there's um, a scenario too with just just finally before we let you go and then talk about the, the transport of these things because we're moving these things around the world a lot too, aren't we? I mean, they, they're often produced in one country and delivered in another and, and you know, tracking, tracking those pollution sort of pathways must be fairly tricky. Yeah, so there's an international convention that requires um, movement of these materials to be monitored and, and appropriately appropriately managed. And I think it re- – I'm not actually particularly familiar with it. I think it's a reasonably effective uh, convention. Um, my concern would be when production in one country has shifted to another and the toxins that are being, cons- that are, that are being released – are for products that are being consumed in another country. That, to me, is an irresponsible, amoral problem. And that's happened quite a bit. But for the most part, and this is a really interesting point, the multinationals do behave very well, in my experience, and it's the local companies that behave badly. So chasing the multinationals, we tried doing that very early on. It wasn't going to make much of a difference. It's much better for us to work locally with the national countries with the national governments and and have them deal with it that's where the toxins yeah are. i suppose that stuff's more hidden too isn't it because it doesn't it, it go across borders and so forth. it's exactly. less visible yeah, it's less visible it's yeah. less transparency the internationals are as you know decently transparent they're, they're forced to be by all yeah. of the good work that goes on yeah. well richard look it's, it's fascinating talking about this it's great to hear you you're on it um congratulations again on the award and i suspect you're on the on the plane very soon uh heading back north somewhere i'm i'm heading to tokyo to see if i can chase the G7, G20 process and get pollution incorporated in that. Fantastic. Congratulations on the award. Thanks for being on Einstein and Go-Go. Pleasure. Thanks so much. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Thanks so much for being here. It means a lot. Uh, you are listening to 3 Triple R, folks. It's Einstein and Go-Go. In the studio with us now is Dr. Yasmin Yeh-Singh. She is from the Royal Children's Hospital and the Royal Women's Hospital. Welcome to the studio, Yasmin. Thank you so much for having me. Look, it's great. It's great to see you. I mean, we, we've chatted a few times off air, as, uh, as we do, and we've talked a lot about your work, which I find fascinating. You work with uh, cancer patients, children or adolescents and children who uh, have cancer therapies. Um, but this affects their ability to have families later in life. So talk us through what's going on with the therapies and why why this is a problem. Well, we know that cancer treatment does affect um, fertility and um, the impact of cancer treatment on fertility is quite variable. It depends on the age of the child and also the type of treatment and the dose that they get. Um, Trying to predict the impact of cancer treatment on fertility isn't an exact science, but there is some really good data from collaborative international studies showing that um, there are some treatments that can that can have really quite a significant impact. And so it's now an international standard of care that um, clinicians talk to families um, about the impact of this treatment on fertility before cancer treatment starts. So this was one of the things when you first were telling me about this some probably a year ago now, I was quite stunned that these cancer treatments are in, in many cases had 
without any discussion whatsoever about any sort of family planning into the future or the idea of, uh, I'm assuming this is the idea of extracting a woman's eggs and freezing them for later or, or sperm donations or whatever else to make sure that people can still have families. But this just wasn't being done? When we first started our program, you know, it was really, we knew that clinicians found it really hard to have these discussions. Um, I think um, there were many barriers to really having these discussions. Firstly, um, uh, we're dealing with paediatric providers, um, so who might not consider fertility discussions within their scope of practice. Mm. Um, Also, at the time, there was really no guidance for clinicians. Um, Also... Um, really it was hard for clinicians to find the information that they needed at the point of clinical care when they had a patient in front of them. Yeah, right. Um, No protected time to even have these discussions. And um, so we set about trying to develop a framework for clinicians to be able to have these discussions. Hmm. And and I'm assuming at the... At the hard end of this, this is you will never have children if we don't take some sort of preventive steps? Oh, I think that's um, a very extreme end, really. And I think part of what we want to do is to provide um, really accurate information. Um, And so we know that for children in particular who haven't gone through puberty, um, they're, for example, um, girls, their ovaries are inactive. um, Mm. So the impact of treatments can be uh, a little bit less compared to if they were an older person. Mm. Um, So the overall impact um, of cancer treatment on fertility, um, if we just take a global view of childhood cancer survivors for females, it's around 16%. Now, that doesn't sound that high, I guess, but... um, Unless you're in the 16%. Well, that's exactly right. (laughs) And there are some treatments, for example, um, uh, bone marrow transplant or pelvic radiation that can have um, risks up to, you know... 80 to 100 percent so it's really about individualized discussions um with each child and with each family about Mm. that risk Mm. we know that for boys um uh, it's a little bit different because they're not so protected when they're younger so we know that alkylating treatments like cyclophosphamide for example um can affect um the the germ cells in the testis uh, from a young age Wow. Yeah, interesting. So, Yasmin, I mean, having cancer is pretty bad news anyway for the family and for the child involved. I can imagine if you then introduce this additional layer of we need to have this discussion about family planning and fertility, there might be some hesitance or some pushback from the parents to protect their child from this kind of conversation. In the research that you've done, have you found there to be some reticence in the family for these conversations? Um, I think there's a spectrum of um, how families feel, really, and that's where the clinician really needs to get on the same page as a family and understand the family's values. So I see that the clinician's role is to have the knowledge and to impart knowledge, but also it's really very important to listen to where families are coming from. Um, Certainly parents um, are protective of children. They want to do the best thing by their child. Um, But actually our research has found that uh, they want to know. 
They want to know the information. Mm. Um, what they do with that information is an individualised thing uh, mm. in terms of whether they decide to proceed with potential fertility preservation measures. So fertility preservation is where uh, we try and uh, implement measures that might protect fertility before cancer treatment starts. For adults, this can be a little bit of an easier decision maybe and, and it's it's never easy. But for adults, there's a potential to, for example, collect sperm or have an IVF cycle to, to collect eggs. With children, particularly prepubertal children, we don't have that option. So we're really left with procedures where we um, go and collect gonadal tissue. Now, those procedures are still considered investigational. Um, so you can see how difficult it can be for both clinicians and families um, to really have these um, conversations. And that's why we've implemented tools and guidance for families and clinicians um, to really be able to have high quality conversations um, and for families to understand, to have realistic expectations about parenthood in the future. So, so the interesting thing is there is how much uh, is put on these clinicians because to me this is almost in the same realm and correct me if I'm wrong here where uh, you would for example have a genetic counsellor working with families and parents if there was a disease that had that sort of component to it and yet in this case sadly the poor clinician has to do that job as well now they've got they've got these guidelines you're putting together but yeah. it seems odd to me that there aren't a maybe this is just money but there aren't a host of you know paediatric psychologists that come in and and go through this with the parents and so forth what why why is that why is it, it done that way yeah it's a really interesting question and i think um part of it was from um, messages from the family about um wanting to have um the counseling uh, what used to happen before the program started was that um some families who got to have conversations were referred to ivf clinics to further have that discussion and the messages that we got were that they were very grateful but they would have appreciated to have those conversations in-house at the time of a cancer diagnosis. Probably with a familiar face as well. Exactly. So so what we've done is we've set about trying to upskill the organisation. So cancer diagnosis um, it it can occur at any time on any day and so we felt that it was really important for um, paediatric clinicians to have an awareness and to improve Mm. their knowledge around this and um, I'm really um, uh, you know I have a lot of faith in our oncologists I have the highest regard for them and over time I've really seen an amazing cultural change and improvement in our key performance indicators around discussions with families. That's fantastic. So Yasmin you mentioned before that in um, children that are pre- puberty then you obviously you can't take an egg or a sperm sample and it's the gonadal tissue how does that actually work how do you then take that tissue when they get to an age that they're ready to have a family and produce a baby Yes, so um, that would all happen at a future IVF centre. Mm. And so the tissue is stored up until the point when uh, an adult would need it. Hopefully they will never need to use that tissue. That's our hope. Um, But for ovarian tissue, what's done is um, little slices of that tissue are then put back into the body. And um, they can be put back anywhere. Um, But often they're put back 
in the ovarian bed and if that tissue obtains a blood supply then it will start to function and start to produce eggs. So it's very early days. There's been around 130 pregnancies worldwide using that technology. Mm. There have been two pregnancies where the tissue's been collected from childhood. The rest of the pregnancies have been from tissue collected from adults um, but then again um, you know we just have to wait and see until yeah. our children yeah. get older well Yasmin look it's great that you're on this because I remember when you first told me about this and I think as a lot of our listeners would be thinking right now it's like how can those discussions not have been had it seems like a, an absolute prerequisite but uh, I understand the clinical stresses and the difficulties in some of these environments so it's great that you've got this new framework out there and hopefully it will spread not just through Australia but all over the world so thanks so much for chatting to us today thank you so much for having now, welcome back, everybody. You are listening to Einstein and Gogo. We have our third and final guest in the studio with us now. Her name is Stacey Rowe. She is from the Department of Epidemiology and Preventative Medicine in the School of Public Health and Preventative Medicine at Monash Health, and she also works for the state government. Welcome to the studio, Stacey. Thanks for having me. It's good to have you in here. We connected on Twitter a while back somehow. I don't know. I, I think I was doing a bit of fangirl action on you. <laughs> <laughs> Don't say that in front of these two. They'll, they'll just uh, they'll tease you forever. Feel left out. Uh, no, look, uh, it, it's interesting because you work in uh, the whole area of infectious, infectious diseases. Tell us a bit first about your PhD. What, what? Because you're working with the government, which is we're going to get into. But your PhD, what specifically are you doing there? Sure. So it's a collaboration between Monash University and the Department of Health and Human Services. Mm-hmm. And what we're trying to do is make better use of existing data, publicly held data, to inform communicable disease surveillance and control practices okay now there's so much data floating around at the moment that we just don't use i mean the the state government has databases that seem to be just sitting there i mean is it, am i right in saying that well the, we do have vast swathes of data yep. um they're all used for the purpose for which they're collected but bringing them all together um can help us answer a range of questions that can inform the way we um, surveil and control communicable diseases yeah yeah so in um you know the mainstay of uh, infectious disease surveillance is um looking at a mandated notification system so medical practitioners and laboratories are required to notify us by law of a range of conditions of public health importance so things like influenza and salmonella measles sexually transmissible infections and mm. we use those data to uh, inform prevention and control programs yeah so if we if we take an example like influenza and i think this happens every year but you hear someone saying it's a bad year for the flu this year i mean when, when you're looking at the data what what do you actually see there for like 2019 how, how are we looking for flu infections this year yeah so generally um every year we monitor the surveillance data look at distribution across uh, can i community. just check sorry yeah, so what do you mean by surveillance data is this sort of doctors reporting i've seen seven people with the flu or is this pharmacist saying I've had 90 people come in and ask me for no. codrill? Like, they've got, they got cameras in your home. Uh-huh. This is what I'm asking you. Like, yeah. Is it sort of Aldi-level spyware? You know how you think you want something and then Aldi's got it on sale? Like, Is this the kind of surveillance we're talking you. about? <laughs> yeah, so we monitor a range of indicators, but by law, uh, medical practitioners and laboratories who, who diagnose individuals with these conditions so there's a set of about 60 or 70 conditions um, that the states and territories in Australia um, monitor by law they have to uh, notify health departments uh, and they send information about um, what they've been diagnosed with and certain characteristics of who they are um, so that we can monitor distribution across Mm. the community and essentially the notifications are sent into the department so that we can look at um, 
yeah, whether there's incidents or clusters or outbreaks of disease, and that we can put in measures in place to uh, prevent transmission across the community and to minimise impact. Mm. I've often, I think everyone probably has had this. You, know, you go to the GP and you'll see a, a sign up in the saying that there's been measles in the area or something like that. Is there a certain uh, level that you have to get to before you will issue such a statement? So, say if there was one person in Brunswick that had measles. Does that notice go up or does it have to be 10 people? Yeah, so measles is an interesting example because it's highly infectious. So for every one measles case that we get notified of, um, you know, the secondary transmission attack rate would be, can be up to 15 to 18 people. And that's in an entirely susceptible community. So that's if you are unvaccinated or if you haven't had a past uh, exposure to measles. Um, so it's highly transmissible. So what um, we do is putting in vaccination programs into place so that most people are protected against measles but if there is uh, a, a case of measles what we want to do is try to identify the extent of measles distribution across uh, the community so putting up those notices is a way of alerting people that they may have been exposed to measles or there's measles mm -hmm. circulating and that um, if they're starting to feel unwell they can also get quickly diagnosed and mm -hmm. treated. Mm -hmm. Great. So in, in terms of Australia I'm curious as to when these sort of outbreaks as we call them you know like these um, you know times of war as opposed to peacetime scenarios with some of these infections how we respond i mean most of my knowledge comes from television so i've heard of something called the cdc you know in the u.s yes. what's our equivalent here in australia well um it's a good question so we don't have an equivalent uh in, in australia so we, we have a federated system so the um uh, surveillance and control activities is devolved to the states and territories but we also feed our information into a national notifiable uh, disease surveillance program mm -hmm. to inform national policy so a lot of those uh, national policies might be vaccination programs that are funded as part of the uh, commonwealth government national immunization program um, but yes essentially we're monitoring um, uh, diseases at a state and territory level and we might identify local clusters or outbreaks of disease uh, but then when it does uh, it can at some stages get multi-jurisdictional. You might be responding to, for example, mm. a large foodborne outbreak that uh, right. goes across borders because the food's distributed across... Aubrey Wodonga. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yep. um, so then it, it, it switches over and we have a coordinating... Uh, a way that we can coordinate outbreak investigation across the states and territories. And then obviously the next level is um, sort of epidemics that go across multiple countries and indeed pandemics that are, that yeah. are global. Yeah. And, and with something... so. Back Back to the flu, where we sort of oh, yes. started. Like, uh, you know, what is it like at the moment? Is is there, is it a really bad flu year, or is it just media beat up? You know, like. You know, yeah, like milk being too dear or something, you know, usual stuff. <laughs> well, you have had um, a quite a protracted flu season this year, so it started very early um, mm. and it, 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 it is a continuing. Um, so because we've had a lot of testing, so a lot of people are going to get testing, so we get a lot of positive diagnoses, so therefore our case numbers go up. Mm, right. um, but yeah, it does vary season to season, uh, and it's one of those things that we need to monitor uh, each season using a range of, of data, including those notifiable diseases that I was talking about, surveillance data, but also looking at um, you know impact, uh, so hospitalisations yep. and deaths and things like that. And how much can you utilise other jurisdictional data to inform what's coming? So, for example, you know we hear about the flu season, mm. but obviously these seasons are different, like in the uh, northern hemisphere. So, do, do we preempt them or do they preempt us in things like the flu? Yeah, so actually, um, so the Northern Hemisphere is going into their flu season now. So what they do is, is look at what's happening in the Southern oh, yeah. Hemisphere yep. and looking at the viruses that 
that are circulating and that informs um, their vaccination formulations for their season yep. and then vice versa. So right. it's sort of a, oh, bit, so of a, it does a bit of a around. cycle. Yeah. Yeah. Talking about people like uh, our first guest, Richard, who kind of goes from north to south, right? Yeah. They're the vectors Carriers. That, that carry it around, <laughs> I guess. So what I, from what I understand, uh, your research is looking at flu and a couple of other vaccines and how that works with pregnant women. Is that right? That's part of your PhD? Yeah, that's correct. So what we're doing is um, looking at the evaluating our vaccination programs for pregnant women against two conditions, influenza and uh, whooping cough, which is caused by the Bordetella pertussis bacteria. Um, so these uh, vaccination programs are recommended for all pregnant women across Australia from 20 weeks gestation. And what we wanted to do in Victoria is look to see whether or not um, these vaccines are, are, are um, being... Uh, taken up by pregnant women so looking at coverage mm-hmm. across the population and looking at individual level factors that might be associated with either a reduced uptake of vaccination so looking at pockets of the community that might be missing out so and this is partly to protect newborns who at that point are too young to get the vaccinations themselves is that right yeah so it's got a a, a dual purpose the so first is to protect pregnant women during pregnancy um, so these uh, conditions can be very severe during pregnancy mm. but also uh, in infants in the first few months of life so the mechanism is that um, mothers that are vaccinated, women who are vaccinated develop antibodies that then are uh, transferred via the placenta to the developing fetus and then they're born with some protective level of circulating antibodies against these conditions. Yeah, fascinating. So one of the things that would probably make that easier is when you're pregnant you have to go and see a doctor regularly. So what are the gaps? Why why are women not getting the vaccines? I'm assuming they'd be seeing someone telling them to do it. Yeah. Is it is it a, you know, a, a personal choice that's stopping them, do you think? Yeah, so there's two things there. So looking at um, what we know already, women uh, are really um, receiving a lot of the whooping cough vaccine. So um, our estimates suggest that up to 80% of women these days are now being vaccinated against whooping cough, which is really great. But for flu, this is uh, considerably lower. So around 40%, 50% of women um, are receiving this vaccine. So uh, yeah, there's a lot of care, um, uh, antenatal care that happens during pregnancy. And there's lots of opportunities that their healthcare provider can recommend these vaccines. So what we want to do is make sure that these, um, the recommendation of these vaccines is really embedded into antenatal care. So whether you have obstetrician-led care or GP-led care, that there's lots of opportunities for women to take up these vaccines. There is also um, personal choice in that factor mm. as well, but it's also about access. Uh, one of the things I, I suppose a lot of people don't think about is that when you're pregnant, there's a, a lot of the normal lovely things that we use when we have you know, severe colds, coughs and flus, uh, you, can't, you can't use. So, you know, uh, you know if, you're, if you're pregnant, you just got to suffer through it, which is kind of awful. I mean, I wonder how much information like that is given out to women when they're in the early stages of pregnancy. And so, Absolutely. You know, yeah. Yeah, there's, uh, prob- there's a lot of advice uh, and probably some uh, conflicting messages as well. Mm. Um, but the science that, that we follow is, is that, you know, vaccination during pregnancy is safe yep. and it's effective and it's the best way that you can protect yourselves during pregnancy and your babies in the first yeah. few months of life. I, I, one, one of the reasons why I always tell people the vaccinators is not for you but for you know those who can't be vaccinated and i think this is a great example where infants at that point are not vaccinated they're highly susceptible and and they're also in the high risk group for these things being more severe if they 
they get the flu, right? Absolutely. So flu infection during early infancy can be very severe. It increases their risk of hospitalisation, ICU admission and death. And similarly for whooping cough, um, there's been a lot of publicity about whooping cough and infant deaths. Um, So one in every 200 cases um, of very young infants that acquire uh, whooping cough will die. So it's um, a really uh, effective way to to minimise their risk. Yep. Do you think that's one of the reasons why the flu vaccine hasn't been taken up quite as much by pregnant women? Or do you think it's, I remember hearing this season, the flu kept morphing into different things. And so at the start of the season, you take one vaccine and by the end of the season, it wasn't good anymore. Like, is, is that sort of information maybe putting some women off? Yeah, potentially. So, I mean, with the flu vaccine, um, you know, it generally its effectiveness is, is more moderate. So, right, you know, sometimes it's 30 or 40%, sometimes it's 50 or 60%. So people might consider, oh, well, it's not, you know, perhaps not worth getting it. Um, the other thing is some people consider that flu, uh, you know, is fairly trivial. But, um, oh, my God, they must <laughs> never have had the flu. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Certainly not the case. So, um, so, yeah, all of these things might impact on a woman's decision to vaccinate. But um, certainly when you're um, immunocompromised, when you're pregnant, mm. um, you know, it's it's the best way to, to protect themselves from these yeah. severe conditions. Yeah, I think a lot of people think they have the flu when they have a minor rhinovirus. I had the flu this year, first time in 25 years. Ouch. And I'd been vaccinated, so it was one of the latest strange, you know, this this can happen. Yeah. But yeah. all the more reason to get everyone vaccinated as much as possible to stop these other strains getting around. But Stacey, thanks so much for coming in and talking to us today. It's great great chatting about this. I think it's um it's it's good to know that people are monitoring this and know they don't have cameras in your home. <laughs> <don't have> to worry. <laughs> thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Uh, we're pretty much out of time, folks. Dr. Linden, it's good to see you. You too, Dr. Shane. Are you in next week? No, no, I'm not here. I'll be sleeping do? here, but I won't be on, uh, I won't be on the airwaves. <laughs> sleep until next month. Dr. Lauren. A pleasure. The, the couch in the green room is very comfortable, so it you is, could, oh, you yeah. could stay It's here. a new couch. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, we buy one once every 20 years here at Triple R. And, uh, you know, we, <laughs> We're fancy. Yeah, it's good, fancy stuff. Uh, Liv's been doing our Twitter feed, folks. Uh, I think uh, we're up to the same amount as Charlie Sheen now, aren't we, Liv? Yep, she's giving me the thumbs up. That joke used to have some potency, but it's wearing thin these days. <laughs> Hope you have a fabulous Sunday. We're going to have a lot more science for you next week. There's not that many shows to go for the year, actually. I think six or eight or something. Mm. Oh, God, it's gone fast. So fast. Anyway, I'm Dr. Shane. Have a wonderful Sunday. Remember, science is everywhere. Triple R. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Agogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Agogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.